You may not know his name, but you almost certainly know his music. He's the composer of Game of Thrones, whose music has won him two Emmys, a pair of Grammy nominations, and attracted thousands to his live concert performances of that now iconic score. He's also the composer of TV's Westworld, and over the past 20 years, scores for such films as Iron Man, Clash of the Titans, Safe House, Pacific Rim, A Wrinkle in Time, and such other series as Prison Break, Person of Interest, and Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. It's a pleasure to welcome to the podcast Ramin Javadi, the composer of Eternals. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's fun to see you and, and to talk with you again. And let's take a minute, if we can, to talk just a little bit about your background. Tell us where you grew up and when music became an important part of your life. Yeah, I kind of have an interesting background, I guess. I, I was born and raised in Germany. My mom is German and my father was Iranian. So I grew up with like a mixture of cultures and I listened to a lot of classical music and I always like to to laugh about it because in, in kindergarten already we would talk about canons and Mozart and Beethoven. So it's just, you know, that's, it's just part of that culture. And, and then at the same time, my dad would, besides listening to just Western regular pop music or whatever you want to call it, he, he also would listen to uh, Middle Eastern music because I didn't understand the language. I don't speak Farsi, I only speak German. But I was drawn to the instrumental music. You know, the violin is very prominent in that music and uh, I would always listen to those pieces and, uh, and would transcribe them actually on the guitar and try to play them. Uh, and then so classical music, Middle Eastern music, and then of course I was exposed to just Western music, pop music, rock music. And in the 80s, I got very much into the rock and metal. And so that's when I really got very much into the guitar. That, that, that's my main instrument. So you went to the Berklee College of Music in Boston in the 1990s, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I knew as a, as a teenager that I wanted to do music for a living. And, and, and the music that I wrote was always instrumental. I, uh, to me, yeah, the voice or choir is, is an instrument like any other. It's not so much always a lead instrument for me. So I always was drawn to instrumental music. And that kind of lent, lent itself towards film music for me. So I discovered Berkeley College of Music. And uh, stylistically, it took me onto another journey because that's a very uh, jazz-heavy school. So I really got into jazz and I love that. I mean, it was a, a big culture shock because at the time I had, I kind of had studied a little bit of the theory, but I hadn't really listened to Coltrane and Miles Davis and all those great uh, jazz musicians. And, and it, it was incredible. I just ate it all up when I came to the college. When did film music enter your life? Did it become an ambition to score films while you were there? No, that was much earlier already. I was always kind of, my music styles or the music that I listened to was very much split between songs, pop music and rock music. I played in a lot of bands, but then the film music is something that, that always really caught my interest because because of my classical background, I, I was very much into the orchestra. And so that always fascinated me how there was orchestra in the movies, but also other things, songs, and, and there was all these elements. And I just, I just love that. There seemed no boundaries in film of what you could do with instruments. And so very early on, the, the film that triggered it for me was The Magnificent Seven, Elmer Bernstein's score. When I heard that, that it had such an impact on me. And then, of course, John Williams' Star Wars, that's, that's another big one for me. And then so from early childhood, I was always fascinated by movies. How did you wind up working for and with Hans Zimmer? That was a complete uh, coincidence. I had finished uh, college in Boston and I was living there, I was playing in a band. 
And there is a music store in Germany that when growing up, my dad and I, we would always, he would drive me there and I would hang out there and play guitars. And, and so the owner of the store, his name is Uli, saw me grow up and, and, and get into the music thing. And, and so whenever I went back, when I was already living in the States, whenever I went back, I would go see him. And one time over the holidays, we had dinner and he just asked me, what are you up to? What do you want to do? And I, I told him, well, eventually I want to do film music. And then he said, I know somebody that knows somebody at, at Hans's place. And that's how that connection was made. And two weeks later, I was on a plane from Boston to LA and, uh, and, and yeah, started working at Hans's studio. That's extraordinary. I mean, <laughs> I, people, I think, wouldn't even believe that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a complete coincidence. And yeah, again, at the time, I, even though I wanted to end up in film music, I didn't actively go out to LA and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. It just kind of happened naturally and, and by sheer luck. And yeah, I'm very thankful how sometimes you're, you step through a door and, and things happen and, and then it all went from there. Some of our listeners may not remember that you actually scored the first Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, Iron Man, back in 2008. Did you have any clue about the level of success this would have? No, not at all. I mean, I've always been a comic book fan, and I was very happy to be able to work on that movie with John. And uh, yeah, it was John Favreau. John Favreau, yeah, exactly, the, the director of the film. And uh, it was an incredible experience and, and just... Yeah, now looking back of how that Marvel Universe has expanded, but I had no idea at the time of, of what this all would become. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby of Marvel fame were two of the creators of Iron Man in 1963, and then Kirby uh, created Eternals when he returned to the Marvel fold in 1976. Did you know anything of these artists' work when you were growing up? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, growing up in Germany, I, I did have some comics. And in fact, when I worked on Iron Man, on one of my trips back visiting my family, I actually went to the attic and looked for some of these comics. And I still have them. And, you know, they're a little bit beat up. I wish I had kept better care of them. <laughs> but they are in German and they're from yeah, like the late 70s, early 80s. And there is even one where I forgot what the front story was, but there was like a second story in the back. And there is actually a, a little bit of, of Eternals in there, actually. So... Very, very interesting now that I ended up doing this one. How did you wind up scoring Eternals? Uh, I got the call for it, actually. Chloe Chow, the director, was interested in working with me. And I happened to be in Europe, and she was in Europe as well, prepping for the shoot. So we actually met in London for lunch and hit it off from there. We had a, a great lunch. Uh, I almost actually missed my flight. <laughs> that I had that afternoon because we got so into we got so into the story and oh we could do this and what about that and it was just uh, she's so creative and and her vision was just incredible so we had we had, right at right away at that meeting we had a blast so the, a lot of us discovered Chloe I think uh, with the film Nomadland which of course won her the Oscar as best director did th is this meeting then before the success of Nomadland had did you did you know her work I, I knew her work, but I didn't know even she was doing this movie at the time. I saw it actually uh, while we were working on uh, on Eternals, actually. That's when I saw the film much later. Yeah, at the time, I, I wasn't even aware of that film that she was doing this one. So then were you on the film actually before or during shooting? Uh, correct, yeah. She started shooting and... I'm trying to think now because with the pandemic, it's such a blur now, right? But I know. But, but yeah, she started shooting and we kept in touch. I was working on other stuff, but then very much towards the end, 
is when she actually invited me back out to London and I came to set, which is always very inspiring to see, obviously. And she showed me a lot of material that was available then at the time that the editors already started to assemble. And that's when I started writing, actually. That was right before the pandemic hit. And so at least we had some meetings in person and, you know, like the regular way of how we used to work at the time. And so that that's how it actually all then kicked off. And that's when you started working. And then we had to do it through the pandemic, which was not easy. But what a great opportunity to actually meet and talk. And you actually saw, you actually were on set. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just I just love being on set and just, just standing on the side and just kind of watching and seeing the actors and then Chloe, you know, do her thing. I saw some early assemblies of scenes and, uh, and that's something that really inspires me besides obviously all the conversations I had with Chloe, but I'm very inspired by, by visuals. I mean, that's why, again, I love writing music to picture because there's so much that happens on the screen. So I always love when I can see something early because I get very inspired by it. Did Chloe convey any particular thoughts about what the music should say, what it should be like? Well, the fact that there's 10 Eternals, and and that's also something I discovered when doing Game of Thrones, like when you have a lot of characters and then you go, oh, we need a theme for every single person, it gets very complicated and convoluted. And of course, when it might work when there's only one person on the screen, but then as soon as there's two, then you go, which, you know, and it just goes from there. So having 10, we, we decided let's not get into that. We'll have very specific sounds for all their powers and let that be the, the specification of that. But let's more talk about overall themes. So of course, in this case, then we said, okay, of course we need a hero theme for them. And then we also talked about more global subjects of the movie and, and uh, the fact that they have been around for so, for so long. So we talked about a memory theme. There's a lot about memory and, and love and life, just ex them experiencing life on Earth. So it, those were overall subjects and, and thematic uh, ideas that we went after. I'm not sure that I've ever seen a movie that took place in so many key time periods of Earth's history you're in Mesopotamia, you're in Babylon, you're in Southeast Asia, you're in the Aztec Empire, you're in modern times. Did each of these places require a different kind or style of music? At first we thought, oh yes, every, every location, every time period, let's be authentic and represent that. And then we realized it actually might be a lot better to just blur these things a little bit. Again, because they have been around for so long, they're, they're non-human beings, right? They have superpowers. There's a lot more supernatural aspects to this. So we, we decided, again, to treat it more globally and not try to be authentic and, and almost make it like source music or something. So these cues or the music definitely have elements that I drew from certain locations, but we went more for like a global sound. So for example, in Aztec, I did use guitars and there's charangos and I used some conch shells. And then in the Middle East, I would use oud and saz, but it's all embedded with synthesizers and there's even some electric guitars that we brought in and, and we just got, kind of wanted to blend it a bit more and one other instrument that we came up with that would be the key instrument for the Eternals was actually the organ. I just love that sound of the organ and, and there's also a lot of choir. To me organ and choir it's so powerful so we thought that was very fitting for the Eternals. It feels a little bit more supernatural and we made a blend through, you know, through the different time periods with all these sounds together. You hit on two of my favorite sounds in the score, which is the organ 
and then the fairly extensive, I think, use of choir throughout, they lend almost a kind of spirituality to the score in a way. Correct, yeah. And, and, and to that note, another big subject that always came up with Chloe was the word mission, because they are on Earth and have a mission. So that, that's why we felt those, those instruments were very fitting. And then the use of the world instruments in the various different locations, I think, is, is, uh, it adds a, a, a kind of different level of color and really a level of place, too. Oh, for sure, yeah. And, and that's something I've always loved to to mix and match. And the Middle East, like Duduk was another instrument that I used. But then it's fun to blend it with something else because there, there's, there's a, like a party scene there where I did the specific source music for that where we actually really had to be more authentic. But then when it went to score, it was really fun to kind of break away from that a bit. I wonder if we should tell our listeners exactly what a duduk is and what a saz is and what an oud is. You know, they may not know. Yeah, well, an oud and a saz, it's a Middle Eastern, it's sort of like an acoustic guitar. The oud doesn't have any frets. It's like a blend of a nylon string guitar and an uh, upright bass would be an exaggeration because it doesn't go that low, but it definitely has a lower range. And then a saz, is, uh, it does have frets and, and has more of a, like a pingy sound. And, and a duduk is an ethnic wind instrument. I always compare, it's like an ethnic oboe or something. That's, that's very difficult to play, uh, but beautiful sound. I love that sound. All of these, I think, make it such a sort of special and magical kind of score. And magical appropriately so, because these are characters, and I still can't wrap my head around it, these are characters who span thousands of years and who are part of a different kind of culture that spans outer space. And I'm wondering, how do you as a composer get your head around it to figure out how to convey this musically? <laughs> Yeah, it was definitely tricky. I mean, every project you start with a clean slate and it's always that the beginning is just so hard and it's torture. It's always nice to look back when it's done and you go, oh, of course it should sound like this, but getting there is not always that easy. The first thing that came to mind speaking with Chloe was that organ because there is, there is that supernatural sound to it and it's almost like a blend, like the way I used it sometimes, so it's like a blend that it almost feels synthetic, which was on purpose and, and so it felt like it was right for this. And what about the use of, of electronics, which I think is pretty much present throughout the score? Why that choice, and what did that add to your overall sound? Yeah, it, it gave it a sense of a contemporary feel, supernatural in a sense that it's not like those organic instruments that I mentioned, like a guitar or something that you might expect more for, for certain time periods. And, and so the synthesizer gave it that other sense of power we thought was nice. Yeah, and it's also, I think, very propulsive too. I mean, you're, you really are propelled, I think, throughout the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, I, mean, I love these, these bass sounds we have in certain areas, these swells. And another thing I like to do is just this manipulation with, with synthesizer, but blending it with, with organic instruments and of course the orchestra. I mean, we have you know, a good amount of orchestra in the film. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores Playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Ramin Javadi's score for Marvel Studios' Eternals. The Four Scores Playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you like.
One of the most impressive aspects of the movie, I think, is its cast, which is so culturally and geographically diverse. Was that inspiring in any sense? Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, the idea of, of the different locations and, and time periods and then having a cast like that, it just it felt like there were no boundaries. You could really, any instrument would, I felt like, you know, would work and, and would be fun to incorporate somehow. And even, even if it's not prominent, it, it is there. Yeah, definitely. Can you talk for a little bit about the vocals? There are, there are points in the score where we hear individual voices. I think they're usually wordless, but there are also points where we hear choir singing. What scenes demanded that kind of approach, and how does that fit into the overall scheme of the score? Yeah, it's another element of just making it powerful, I guess, to, to say it in the simplest way. I mean, the, to me, to hear voices, it's I think it's one of the most powerful instruments and that's just inspiring. And and so, like you said, it's usually wordless. It's ahs and oohs. And there's moments even when they're just humming, where, where it's really just uh, somehow gets to the emotional core, I feel, of, of, of the soul and, and some of the conflicts that we experience in the movie. And so it's uh, one in particular, which is the love theme, which does have words, but it's something that I personally like to do, which is, even though it's words, but it's not really a language that has actual meaning. It's just, it's syllables that I like to make up. And to me, it creates a, a sense of, of mystery. And in this case, because we wanted to uh, create something that just feels really old. So I thought, well, let's have something that, that is a language that we might not even be able to understand. And so in this love theme, it's the idea of creating something really ancient. There's a wonderful track on the soundtrack album titled Across the Oceans of Time. It's like a hymn. Can you talk a little bit about that, where it is in the film and what role it plays in the score? Yeah, this is the track I was uh, just talking about. It starts with a solo vocal and it has what seems to be actual lyric, but it's re really just syllables that to me just have a, a special sound. And, and, and so I, I wanted to create something that just feels something from a long, long time ago, just because the Eternals have been around forever. And, and so there is this connection that is made with this music that happens between the Eternals. And, and so it, it plays at the peak moment of the movie, like where it's really about love and, 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 and it gets as emotional as, as it can. Yeah, it's a very powerful scene. Yeah, and it's so beautiful. I mean, that's just a track I know I'm gonna return to again and again. <laughs> nice, thank you. <laughs> What was the process like with Chloe? Would you write a piece and then send it to her in perhaps demo form, and then would they try it up against picture? How did that all go? Yeah, I mean, that's that's how we did it. I started writing a lot of material. Actually, also, the first assembly of the film <clears throat> that I saw was obviously much longer than what the final was, and it was just, it was just beautiful. So it really triggered me to just write a lot of material. I would just send it to her, and then we would get on, on Zoom and, and chat about it, and then we tried things against picture. We just put some of those things up, and some, like the love theme, for example, it actually really had, it instantly found its place in the film. And it was great because we had talked about it 
for several months. And so it just gave me that time to just think. That's what I, I like to do a lot when I just, I sometimes just go on a walk and just think rather than sitting at the piano and write. And it, it's the conversations that, that I, I draw from that, that makes me write certain pieces. Were you able to see many of the spectacular visual effects in the film? Or did you have to sort of imagine what it was going to look like because maybe that part of the film wasn't finished? There was definitely a good amount of that. Yeah, I mean, the sets were stunning to begin with, so I could very much see what the movie was going to be like. But but yeah, there's definitely like movies like this where there is just a lot of visual effects, so there was definitely sometimes you had to imagine. But again, Chloe was very good. I would see stills of what this would become, and she would uh, always be very good in explaining of, of the scope of what I would be looking at eventually. How often would you talk? Once or twice a week? More? Towards the end, definitely, yeah. In the, in the beginning, it was definitely more stretched out. Uh, also, part of that was, unfortunately, the pandemic that obviously slowed things down and the release got pushed. And so there was definitely, in the beginning, there was more space. But as it got closer to the recording sessions, we definitely talked a lot, yeah. Tell me about the recordings. Uh, I understand it was in London. Did you get to go? No, I, I did not get to go. Uh, with the pandemic, actually, I, traveling was just not recommended. And I, I won't even say maybe it wasn't even possible then. So I definitely couldn't go. However, at least I felt lucky that we were able to record because there was definitely a stretch of time when even that wasn't possible, obviously, during the peak of it. So we were able to record. We had to do it a little bit differently. You know, normally in an orchestra, you always have a, a partner next to you in the orchestra that, that with page turns and tuning and everything. And we weren't really able to do that. So we had to sit them socially distanced. We were only allowed to do a certain number of musicians. I believe it was 40 at the time. But again, I felt fortunate that we were able to record. So we just had to work around it, meaning we recorded the same pieces multiple times to get the actual scale of what we usually would get with an orchestra. Each choir member had to be separated with these separation glasses and they were set up in a circle, which looked cool, but it's definitely not the way you would normally record a choir. But so yeah, we got through it and I think it sounds amazing and you know everybody was excited that, that we were able to record and, and play the music. Did you record at Abbey Road? Uh, correct, exactly. Yeah, we recorded at Abbey, and, and the scale of the room definitely helped because we needed the space. I mean, we really had to sit them all apart, and it was a new learning experience for everybody. I mean, the engineers really quickly figured out how to seat them, how to place the microphone to get a great sound, and, and obviously Abbey is you know, it's such a great-sounding room, so I think it sounds amazing. So were you able to monitor the recordings here at home on Zoom or some other technical level? Correct, exactly. Yeah, we had <laughs> one machine going that was sending audio and also the sync for the picture. So when they would hit record, the picture would run in sync for me here and, and it worked flawlessly. And then we had multiple Zoom machines going so I could talk to the different people without interfering with others and you know, the conductor and the orchestrator and the engineer. <laughs> So I was definitely pressing different buttons a lot, but it worked. We all made it work, and I was actually amazed of how well it worked. I mean, I really, it was pretty flawless. When was this? Was this earlier this year, or was it last year? No, this was... It was in January, February, March. Yes, that's when we recorded. You know, the pandemic has, has, has scrambled all of our brains now. <laughs> yeah, I somehow have a hole in this whole year of how I relate to time now. I, I always have to double think, wait, was this two months ago or two years ago? I can't remember now. 
The film is, is two and a half hours long, and I think there's a lot of music in this. Do you know how much music there actually is in the film? I think there's about 110 minutes of score. Uh, and then there's also a lot of source music. There's a uh, great use of songs. And so, yeah, it's a lot, but it really flows well, I think. It feels organic because when we spotted the movie, which that's when you determine where music should go and how it should play, we really paid attention to the dynamics of it all. And so we said, even if there is music, let's make sure that it's not always overpowering and that it's really just sitting underneath and, and just enhancing the story where it needs to. But yeah, overall, there's definitely a lot of music. How long were you on the project? Oh, it went all through the pandemic. So it's, I want to say, a year year and a half. Is it one of your longest scores? I suspect it is. Uh, it's definitely one of them. And then including all the extra pieces that are not even in the film that like where I just wrote the theme pieces and you know, the, the, some of them I believe are in the end credits, all of them actually. I think we were able to get at least part of them in the end credits and we used them. So I wrote even more than 110 minutes, I want to say. <laughs> What would you say was your biggest challenge in scoring the film? Well, I mean, having done the first Iron Man and then have, seeing how the the Marvel Universe has beautifully expanded now and, and with all these amazing scores and characters and this being what they call their phase four of these, of these new movies and, and lesser known characters that get introduced. And it was kind of interesting for me, the, the approach or just doing this because in a way, I could start fresh, but I somehow also had to fit within the universe of all everything. And because I think they do a great job in how they interconnect the different characters and then also use themes here and there. So it'll be interesting to see how that will play out in the future. Yeah, it was definitely challenging to create something unique for these superheroes. You've worked on a number of fantasy projects over the years, from obviously Game of Thrones to Clash of the Titans and to A Wrinkle in Time. Do films with a fantasy element need a different kind of music than a more traditional, straightforward story? Um, not sure. I mean, I always find that every project you kind of look at and you go, what does this need and what can you do different here? Or, or so, yeah, I'm not sure if there is a, a formula. What gets me excited about film music is that there is uh, endless opportunities and, and, and you can be so creative. And, and use different instruments and different styles. And yeah, that's something that I always found so appealing with it. So where are we now in terms of uh, being present in recording studios in the pandemic? Are you able to actually be with musicians these days or are you still sort of stuck in your studio? It's a little bit of both. I mean, the amount of musicians now have increased that are allowed. I think the restrictions have lifted a little bit. However, I actually have not been in a studio yet with, with an orchestra. I haven't done it yet just because of the way timings worked out. And so I have done all of it still remotely. So I'm hoping that those things can turn back to normal again, because there's certainly nothing more exciting for me than having sit with the demos for so long and having written all this music. There's nothing more excited, more amazing than to walk into the room and when the orchestra ends up playing the music and it really comes to life then that it's still i always have to pinch myself with that because that's the most exciting thing because it's just so great it's so powerful tell us what you're working on now i'm not sure actually if i can say at this point unfortunately there's always these restrictions of you know being able to talk about it so i'm sorry <laughs> So uh, just to extend that one step farther, is there any way we can uh, presume that you might be working on the new 
prequel to Game of Thrones? Uh, possible, yeah, in the future. I can say that much. That is on the list for sure. <laughs> well, that, that is exciting, and we certainly all can't wait. Can I just ask you one more question? Did Game of Thrones, the experience, uh, and everything that you, you wrote and, uh, and the tours that you did, did it change your life? Oh, for sure. I mean, that project will always have a very special place in my heart, just how it came together of, of how, you know, nobody could have anticipated the success of what this show has become. And so it, it just all happened so naturally. And so it's very special to me and, and uh, definitely also the longest project I've ever worked on. I think it was a 10 years span. So we became very close. It was like family when we would have our music meetings and every season when we would start back up again, we, we all couldn't wait to get back in the room together. And musically, it it's, has developed my style. It has, I always try to, as an artist, you know, develop further and you, you learn every day. So that, that definitely taught me a lot. It's an, an absolutely amazing project. Well, it's been great to talk with you. Thank you, Ramin, for spending some time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It would also be great if you can rate it because that really helps others find the series. Check out Marvel Studios' Eternals in theaters and listen to the soundtrack wherever music is enjoyed.